0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 410 of them now. And if this is new to you and you'd like to watch previous ones, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu where you'll find all the previous ones organized in several different ways. Um, This show is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, there's a donate button on every page of the site, and there's also a page that explains other ways of donating if you don't like PayPal. My guest today is James Wood. James was a student of Richard Moss, who I interviewed a couple years ago. James works with groups and individuals to discover the fundamental reality of our essential nature. Having awakened in 2002, after years of study, he began to express a spontaneous teaching whose form continues to evolve. His message is that awakening is possible for anyone committed to finding truth. Originally, James studied philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin and and transformational studies, again with Richard Moss, He has combined his education and experience to express a modern, integrated vehicle for others to use as a means of growth in consciousness, leading to awakening. He is dedicated to communicating the essence of the true teaching to those who are ready to receive it. And he has a book entitled The Ten Paths to Freedom, Awakening Made Simple, which we'll be discussing. So welcome, James. Hello. Good to see you. Good to see you. Okay, so... um, I want to backtrack prior to your awakening in 2002 to you know see what your life was like and what may have led up to that and I find that valuable and I think listeners like it because it helps them relate to you as a person you know because sometimes you if you don't do that then the person thinks the, the person is more inclined to think well lucky him but I don't think this could happen to me because of such and such you know I'm I'm too much of a schmuck or something, (laughs) so we'll do that, but I want to start with um, your awakening in 2002 by simply asking, what do you mean by it, awakening? I mean, when you say, I awakened, it's one of those words that a lot of people define differently, I think, so what do you mean by it?
1: Uh, Well, um, first of all, it's really uh, nice to be here, and I appreciate the the work that you're doing with your website. I think it's Helping a lot of people and will help a lot
0: that's, of people. That's the intention.
1: Yeah. Uh, the way I define awakening is uh, full conscious realization of reality. Okay. Let's dig into that. Let's do that. <laughs> uh,
0: okay, so then prior to this awakening you had partially conscious or partially unconscious realization of reality or perhaps a predominance of unreality, would that be fair to say? Uh, mostly unconscious,
1: yes. Just ask yeah. Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Were you a tough nut to crack? Oh, man, you have no idea.
0: <laughs> yeah. I don't
1: mean to be too self-deprecating, but, yeah, it's pretty bad.
0: That's okay. We all came, a lot of us came from pretty dark places, you know, and... And, I mean, and that's good to know. You don't have to be, a you know, some kind of child prodigy to, to awaken. You can... I mean, I, I'm going to interview a woman next week who... Uh, who owned a biker bar and was a bartender for 25 years and was really strung out on cocaine and whatnot and then had this profound shift and is doing very well now. And there are examples in, in ancient scriptures of people who were out-and-out out scoundrels who ended up you know, undergoing a profound metamorphosis. So these are all possibilities.
1: Yeah, well, we're all scoundrels, I think. I mean, that's the thing about ego is... Um, I almost want to say if you're infected with it, which is, you know, might sound kind of morbid, but, um, you know, ego is, ego is the problem, if you will. That's, that's what we're dealing with. And, um, it makes us selfish and arrogant and a lot of other things. I was definitely, um, definitely those for, for sure. And I'm not going to say that I'm not that anymore. It's just that, um... It's like uh when you wake up you you see the self or one sees the self as I don't know, it's like a mirage or hallucination or something like that. And it's still there, it's just not like it doesn't tell you who you are anymore. So um I feel like some terms are useful and uh the word being, I feel is is who we are. It's our essence. It it's it's nameless, formless, um, you know, you could call it Atman or something like that if you wanted to. But um the ego is it's like an imposter that that occupies our space and it uh it's collective as well. I mean we can see it everywhere. And um so I yeah, I was definitely occupied by that, if you will, before.
0: Yeah. You know the word "maya" actually comes from Sanskrit roots, which means that which is not and uh so it kind of remind you remind me of that by by saying that so it's it's we take ourselves to be a certain thing, but we're actually not that
1: right and paradoxically we are that it that's what's interesting is you know in the in Zen they say you know first there's a mountain, then there's no mountain, then there's a mountain again so first there's a self in a world that's opposed to it and then you wake up and realize that's not true at all it's freedom and then uh but then it's a mountain again and then then you see from that perspective of you know no self or from the awakened perspective you see self and see that it's an illusion like it's a uh like i said a mirage or something and so you're not seeing the lake, you're seeing the the mirage, which is a distortion, but everyone else is convinced it's a lake, like everyone is convinced that this the separate and separative self, if you will, the ego is who they are, and it may sound like a judgment like it's a bad thing it's not it's it just is you know it's it's the condition of the world, and all you have to do is read the newspaper to kind of see evidence of that and um I mean, I'm thinking about what happened in Charlottesville, frankly. Uh, I guess it was yesterday. Yes. I'm not sure but what to say about that. No, yet.
0: there was a, there was a um, white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, and then there were protesters opposing the white separatists, and they were having all these clashes and tear gas and all that stuff. And then some neo some Nazi sympathizer drove a car into a crowd and killed a woman and injured a lot of people. So that's what you're referring mm-hmm. to, in case people don't know.
1: Yeah, and I, I read... Frankly, I find some of the news distasteful to read, and I think it's good to read some, but not too much, you know, it's like, <laughs> uh, just, you know, there's a term called hormesis that's interesting. Someone asked me about this, like, what do I do? You know, someone drives a car into a crowd like that, um, and people get overwhelmed by that, like, like that's horrible, and what do I do? And, um I mean, I think a little bit of that, like awareness of what's going on is important, but, you know, step away from the screen sometimes, you know, go out in nature. Um, You know, it's like fasting. Um, I do some intermittent fasting, which I think is is wonderful.
0: I started doing that a few weeks ago myself, having done a lot in the 70s, but -hmm. I decided to start doing it at least one day a week now. I've been enjoying it.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it's great because, uh, you know... Anyway, so you don't want to be on all the time. You don't want to be like reading the news all the time and like inundating yourself with negativity, which is basically what it is. You know, but you know, you want some so you can be aware of what's going on and then, you know, take a retreat or something. And so like with food, you know, you, have, you eat, you, you feast, then you fast and it's part of life. So it's like form, no form. There's like this balance, you know.
0: Yeah. I think that what you've been saying for the past five minutes um, points to an an underlying theme which comes up on this show pretty often um, and that is that if I I could explain it that people tend to polarize I mean most of the world as you said is polarized in the direction of this is real and I am the I am this and this is gonna die and all kinds of sort of limited conceptions of 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 reality and there are a bunch of spiritual people who kinda like swing to the other pole and, you know, this is not real. It's not worth our attention. I don't exist in any way, shape, or form. There's no semblance of self and all that. And <laughs> I don't know. I, I somehow think that you're alluding to a bigger package, which puts everything in, in its proper context. Right. Um, you, you know what I mean?
1: I Yeah, I agree with that. I um, You know, after I woke up, um, that you could say there's a mountain and there's no mountain, right? And then there's a mountain again. Well, another way to look at it is um, it's like climbing a mountain. So let's say you start in the valley and you decide that you want to uh, climb to the peak. So you you know, you know set out and you have your path and you go up and uh, you get to the peak and then you, you attain that, if you will. And then at least metaphysically or spiritually, when you attain that peak, you do realize that ego is isn't real and the world isn't real and it's all an illusion. So that those things are true for one who does that, uh, who's in a sense attained that. So is there someone who attains it? No. I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, that's part of what that is. So, and in, I wouldn't say it's intoxicating, but it's, it's brilliant and it's, it's ultimately satisfying and it's, uh there's a freedom there that's its really attractive. You know, it's, um, part of it is you look around at the world. I'll just speak for myself. So, yeah, you wake up and you realize that the one that wakes up isn't you. It's truth that wakes up to itself through the, this vehicle, this person. And it's a wonderful place to hang out, you know, and, and it's kind of tempting to do that. The thing is um, what I've found is that it's not the most social place uh, it's it's in a way detached from ordinary living, which is where we meet people and live so part of what I've been doing frankly the last few years um like the last few weeks, it's pretty much a daily thing is um, coming back down the mountain and you know what's the valley like and you know, with with wars and with, um, like, this uh, violence that I was talking about in Charlottesville, things like that, it's unpleasant. You know, it's it's nothing but drama. And yet that is, you mentioned Maya, It it's actually one reality appearing as two. So no one's going to say that someone might be watching this and say, well, that's dualistic or something to talk about. You know, there's a car and then people, they get hit by a car. But really, like you know, there's a reality of suffering in the world that that merits attention, and you know, so we embrace that, and it's it's not dualistic if the one who holds that awareness of non-duality, um, it's funny, I stop if I'm really holding the awareness of- awareness of non-duality, I can't talk really. it's the words, you know, there is a place where it doesn't matter. I don't matter. You know, um, when I woke up, actually, and kind of strange, perhaps, but when I woke up, it was so, it's such a place of freedom that I actually lost interest in food. Um, Man, I didn't care. I mean, I care, but that place is, you see through everything. It's funny, I would say I saw through everything, but who am I? I mean, it is and the bot like body the world like who cares you know and it's it's actually it's not even blissful it's better than that um franklin merrill wolf talked about it and um he called it the high indifference and it's it's truly it, it's impossible to talk about it and he actually claims that it's he, you know this was later in his life and he claimed that he, as much as he tried to describe the merits of it to people that they they were either perplexed or appalled, um, you know, because, you know, how could you be indifferent to suffering and, you know, all of that? So um, so if I'm going to embrace words and language, you know, I'm hanging out with Rick and we're having a conversation like that. That's what I want to do. That's who I want to be. I'm James or Rick. They're suffering. And, you know, let's do something about it. And I, I feel like what brings us to that place is, is compassion So, maybe you want to ask a question. I'm talking for a while here.
0: That's okay. Um, I tend to do that myself, but better that you should do most of it. (laughs) Um. Um, I just want to refer people to an interview I did with a guy named uh, Timothy Conway. I've done two with him, and he's, he's a good friend. We've never met in person, but we resonate a lot with each other's perspective. Uh, but he wrote a really nice article, which I think I linked to from BatGap. Another, you can find it on his uh, site, Enlightened-Spirituality.org. But it's about the three simultaneously true levels of non-dual reality. In this model, it's three. Perhaps it could be chopped up in other ways. But you know what he what he outlines is there's the obvious level that everybody takes as real, in which there is starvation and disease and all you know riots and all kinds of stuff that somehow need to be dealt with. Um, and, you know, we don't just brush them off if if somebody's suffering or something. We try to do something about it. And then there's, we could say, the divine level, which, um, you know, the, the level of God's intelligence in which everything is perfect and divinely orchestrated, all 's fine just as it is. <clears throat> and then you could say there's a more fundamental level at which it's just the transcendent. Nothing ever arose. There is no universe. There are no... Car crashes or anything else—it's just all the unmanifest. And you know, his point is that uh, living a life in which you can encompass all three of these simultaneously uh, would be optimum. And yes, you know, there there will be a dimension of your life which is indifferent or aloof or untouched by all this. But then uh, simultaneously, there could be a dimension of your life in which you're, you know actively engaged in trying to solve some problem or you know working with doctors without borders or doing you know doing stuff and at the same time there's this sort of trust in the divine that all is well and wisely put so it's kind of a paradoxical both and all-inclusive kind of perspective that is not just philosophical but could and should be experiential
1: right yeah that is my experience the buddhists have uh i don't know if it's the same thing as you're talking about but they talk about the there's the Dharmakaya, the Nirmanakaya, and the Sambhogakaya. So there's Dharmakaya is the, you could call it the absolute, but I'm sure Buddhists would disagree with that because it's not really anything. It's it's um, You could say it's emptiness or something like that, or at least you approach it through that doorway, and it's completely transcendent. Then you've got the Nirmanakaya, which is the form realm, which is, like you said, the suffering and car crashes and so on. Uh, But then there's the middle realm. The Sambhogakaya is the Bodhisattva realm. Um, I think they call it a celestial body or something like that. I'm not a Buddhist in the strict sense. I just like a lot of the ideas. Um, I'll use any ideas if they're useful. so. So, and you know, that's my experience is the full embodiment of awakened consciousness includes all of that. And when you say that I'll paraphrase what you just said, where, you know, one must embody the Dharmakaya in order to, in a sense, meet the Dharmonakaya, which is, is really just suffering. It's what it is. First noble truth, right? And that that's what it is. So that third mountain position to me is that. It's, and I say that, and there's a little bit of... See, I don't really believe that, because frankly, I'm not sure it ever ends. Um, my experience of it deepens over time. And there's humility in that. So, you know, I'm a guy, I'm a dude, I'm a, I'm a man, I'm a person. And, you know, it even sounds arrogant to say that. Well, of course, of course, that's true. It's just, I'm also that which is, you know, and um, thou art that, we are that. So I think, I think what humanity is doing, we're waking up and we're all part of it. So what am I going to do? Go to the mountaintop? and die there, you know, (laughs) blissful or not, I want to help. you know.
0: Yeah, no, even if you went to the mountaintop to die, I mean, literally speaking, as opposed to figuratively, the dying process would would remind you rather severely that you do have a body, (laughs) and it does feel pain, and so on, so you can't ignore it even if you want to ignore it.
1: Well, ego death is not physical death, or maybe it is, that's what's interesting about it, like, what does the word physical mean? I did a lot of the work of Byron Katie. I don't know if you're familiar with that. but Well, I knew you did from reading your articles. There's a lot of okay. Katie-esque uh, things right. in there. Yeah, I, man, I drilled down into that. I mean, I, I'm not bragging about it. It's literally the case. Um, you can ask anyone that knew me back then. Um, and, you know, a question, you know, <clears throat> is it true? Can you absolutely know it's true? No, you can't. You know, I exist. No, you can't know that um that's interesting <laughs> you know so so it's like yes it's one appearing as two and if i said to you you know i'm drinking water let's say we're we're hanging out uh you and i and i say like hey rick uh could you pass me a glass of water i'm thirsty and you say i'm sorry that's dualistic and <laughs> it's like come on dude it's like really Advite um, to speak invite the police yeah i mean i am being a bit harsh, maybe, but I see a lot of it, and you know anyone that that's hearing this that might be rubbed the wrong way good i mean yeah, I mean that good, that's what is as well, and like who is it that gets rubbed the wrong way i mean we could we could just go on all day, yeah,
0: on. no, I'm glad you're saying this stuff. Here's a quote from one of your writings. It's okay. it's important to realize that there are false teachings out there that will negate the existence of forms in a way that's dishonest. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of what we're saying. And I've beaten this drum quite a bit over the years, too, on this show. Um, and I think it's less than it used to be. I mean, there were mm-hmm. r- allegedly a lot of people who came out of the Papaji scene who were um, talking that way, you know, Would you please pass the salt? Who wants the salt? You know, there is no salt and that kind of stuff. And um, I think everybody got kind of sick of that. Maybe there's other, maybe there's a whole new crop of people rising up through the ranks that are at that stage. I don't know. But these days, it seems to me that the trend has been for a lot of people who have been around for a while to be emphasizing more integration and, Mm. you know, uh, a kind of a more holistic, well-balanced, complete realization rather than one in which you attempt to try hide out in the transcendent and i think part of the problem is people aren't even hiding out in the transcendent experientially there's been a lot of cases where people just read too much of this stuff and and kind of gotten into the intellectual game of thinking that everything's not real even though it's not their actual experience
1: right yeah what's interesting you're talking about hiding out in the transcendent i know what you mean and what's interesting is this is the transcendent like you handing me a glass of water is is just as transcendent as anything, um, and that to me is a deeper realization. Frankly, it's now if you let's say let's use that metaphor, you know if you haven't reached the peak, I mean that is a thing. You know we are talking about waking up. It is an actual event or non-event. Um, I mean it's not really an experience because there's not someone someone that has an experience that happens to that person that that. It's gone. It's just truth wakes up to itself. That's probably as clearly as I can put it. And um, so that third mountain position of embracing the world compassionately is actually—it's what we're here for. I feel. And what I was going to say though is, if you know, if you haven't realized that all is one perspective, and this sounds like a judgment, I think like well if you haven't realized it then don't say it you know it sounds you know it it there's humility in that um i another i sent you some talks we you know some articles and i did a talk one time where i almost want to call him a heckler but it was this guy and i was talking about stuff and he said you know he said oh um something like you know if you say that you're awake you can't be because there's not someone who's awake and it's impossible and i just kind of let it go but The fact is, if it's not true for you, then don't say it. I mean, there are a lot of um, prescriptions in Buddhism about not saying it. And the reason is, you know, if it's not true for you, that's really a big pitfall on the path. And yes, there is a path, and no, there's not a path. So let's not get into that. Um, Is there a doer? It's like, anyway. Um, Yes, there is, and no, there isn't. They're both true. Mm -hmm.
0: There is no Um, mountain, and there is.
1: Right, or neither is true, you know. But um, so Donovan
0: wrote a great song about did you Ever hear that Donovan yeah, song? Sure, sure. First okay. there
1: is a mountain. Yeah. Right. So basically, what I'm saying is, if it's true for you, you know, if it's not true, then don't say it. If it is true, then you really must say it. I mean, the Buddha himself said it. Mm. You know, Jesus said, "I am." What did he say? "I am the way." You know, right. You know. Yeah. yeah.
0: I think that's important. Um, and it's, I mean, part of the reason I. Did this decided to do this show is i was you know I live here in fairfield iowa where you know thousands of people have been meditating for decades and many of them were starting to have awakenings uh, you know genuine things and um, some of them would find that when they told their friends the friends would you know like, put them down and say oh who do you think you are I mean you, you don't float three feet off the ground and you know <laughs> right. you're, you're just Joe Schmo I know you know mm-hmm. I know you have a problem with your business or whatever they didn't think they, they didn't associate real human stuff with actual awakening and um, so I thought all right let me uh, start interviewing some of these people and just demonstrate to the local population that there are people among us who are having awakenings so that it will um, perhaps enable more people to come out of the closet and, and instill some confidence or hope in, in the people who don't think it's ever going to happen to them. And then the whole thing kind of grew and you know w- reached an international audience. But that was one of the original motivations.
1: Yeah, um, <clears throat> you know, I think what I like to see, I think awaken, the word awakening to me, I mean, this is just semantic really, but awakening isn't it, you know, maybe with a capital A, I don't know, but it's like there is an event where you could call it, end of suffering or ego death or something like that. Okay, that's a thing. But on the way there, there's what I would call growth in consciousness. That's just that's just the term I use. And um, so it's important to acknowledge if you're growing in consciousness and yet the ego is so insidious that it'll try to co opt your progress and make it a you know like you're wearing a badge and, you know, whatever. Um, it's it is insidious and frankly Um, You know, I emphasize working with uh, a teacher and I use the term true teacher just to make sure that we're clear about what that is. Working with Richard, for example, for me was, I mean, I say priceless. It's more than that, that he he was able to see that, you know, there's well, they're not hidden, really. I mean, they were hidden to me. Right. It was unconscious, but not not to anyone else. You know, it's like, get a load of this guy. But. Um, but, you know, he saw that, and he he mirrored that to me. And I can't say it was always pleasant, but I'm really grateful for that. It's like a, I almost want to say it was like a WWE SmackDown for the ego, you know? It's just, you know nothing. I almost want to say Jon Snow. Sorry, I'm thinking Game of Thrones. That's an in-joke for Game of Thrones fans out there. Yeah, so he... The thing is, he was just reflecting something for me, and it's hard to take that. You know, the term "humble pie." I'm not sure where that comes from, but you know, you have to eat some humble pie until there's actual you know humility there, and then there's a certain transparency. There's not as much ego, and uh, you can recognize that, and just but just don't stop until you're done. Yeah. yeah. And the question—I'll say this real quick. The question uh-huh. may come up, like, "How do you know you're done?" That's a good question, I think. Stick a fork in your leg. See if you know. Yeah right. You, yeah, you <laughs> ascend. Is th- it three meters or three point? Let's see. I think it's three point one four. But you know, it, there's no end to pi. No, I'm kidding. And, you know, how do you know if if you've truly arrived, so to speak? The question doesn't arise, and that is my experience. It like it sees itself, and then the self, like it truth sees that. And the self, you know, there's like a sense of self, but it's just kind of hanging around. It doesn't control anything. It never did. It's just now it's like, it's over, buddy. You know, you're you're done. And yeah, and it's like thoughts arise and you're like, this is, you know, this is BS. This is not whatever the stream of thoughts are. It's just, it doesn't tell you who you are anymore. And then, you know, it's just this freedom. It's pretty. It's pretty cool. So that's a good question. So you know, if the thought still arises, well, gee, am, am I there yet? And you think, well, maybe I'm. I'll change my name to you know, Swami something or another. And you know, I would advise against that because that is a pitfall. It is. But, you know, and and that's for that's for you know not for me. I don't care. You know, I mean, I. That's just for anyone who might be hearing this. So just keep going and. Um, when it happens, it's good, you know, you'll know. Um, it's not a thought that arises. It's not like a thought tells you, like, you've arrived. I mean, then you're, that's just another thought. It's, it's a realization. It's something like that.
0: Yeah, I have several thoughts and questions based on sure. what you've just said. One is about the point of having a teacher who can kind of see through your ego and help you diminish or dismantle it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some teachers have notoriously... Taken on that role and done so in an extremely uncompassionate or even brutal manner, um, and you know the upshot of it was that they themselves were not free of ego; but it, they they just thought they were. So you, you get guys like Andrew Cohen, and who you know eventually was kicked out of his organization and did a real mea culpa and has been really working to shift gears, or Adi Da, who you know did outrageous things like. I don't even want to get into it. It's so sure. disgusting. Um, but but um, I think one should exercise discrimination as far as who one accepts as a teacher. And if a teacher is abusive and you know, um, you know, in the name of ego busting, really being mean to people, um, look, look, look somewhere else. Be careful. I agree. Uh, so, so there's that thought. Um, Richard isn't you, you want to comment on that before yeah. you know I know Richard's very sweet, yeah, yeah. He, well you know <laughs> well
1: yeah he is obviously i mean I, I, I we know him um no he's um yeah that ego smackdown thing I was talking about it's it's unpleasant, but it's not cruel it's uh it's compassionate, and yet it feels uh it, I never felt that it was cruel that some people might interpret it that way and think. You know, um I guess the what brings me back is like, is it true? You know? That's maybe that's Katie again, but you know, it's like, uh, James, you're kinda this is something Richard Richard used to say is James, you're kinda rigid, you know, you're kinda you know, you need to loosen up a little bit. Um that was sort of a reflection that I got from him and other students and and it bothered me, you know. And first of all it bothered me, which is telltale. Uh the other thing is when I when I really looked at it, they had to care enough to look at it. I had to respect the teaching enough to look at self, look at ego as best I could, and be like, you know, there's something to that. And that's hard to do, but I, I think, you know, I think that's what one must do. It's um, you have to you have to see yourself as you are without flinching and without judgment. And what's interesting is, you know, I like to say that the you know The mind is really just a stream of judgments. None of them are true. So any thought I have is not ultimately true. And, you know, I use this mudra sometimes. It's like, we'll contract like, oh, I'm this, I'm that. Right. And it's interesting. It's not so much. I'm like, someone says I'm rigid. Like I, you know, when I was a student, it's like, I'm not rigid, but the self is rigid and you start to get a little, you know, it loosens a little bit and you're like, Oh man, what is this imposter, this parasite that's latched onto my being, you know, <laughs> this, this name and form, you know, entity or a set of ideas about who I am that isn't true. And the things you have to see it first and then like, Oh, it's interesting it's like yes self is rigid and then at some level it's like it isn't who i am i don't know if that makes any sense
0: well are you distinguishing between true self and personality like you had some rigid tendencies in your personality but that's not who you are
1: i was really hardcore i mean as a student i'm sure there are people out there that could outdo me in that regard but i was really focused and determined and and i th- yeah, well I wasn't fanatical like I wasn't pushing for an ideology or for a view it was it was just i've tried really hard and some of that is ego like i'm gonna do this and you know we could talk about like a deliberate path versus spontaneous awakening which i think is interesting you I and mean, richard discussed that i saw the interview but i mean I was on a i mean i was deliberate you know i came I was like this is what I want i want to wake up i want to be free and yet there's a lot of rigidity there you know and and But that can be used, you know, that you loosen that up a little bit. Like, you know, I was in this uh, Richard's program. It's called the mentor program. It's a three-year process, residential process. And it doesn't go in all year. You go twice a year. It's wonderful. Anyway, when I, okay, so when I showed up at the mentor program, the first meeting, I was, and again, yes, I'm saying I was, okay. It's like (laughs) ego self was, whatever. Um, I was like so gung-ho that it, it actually irritated the other students, other participants. And that was interesting. But a part of it, what I realized was, like I had my regular life where I'd go out with my friends and maybe party and go out and have a few beers and just relax and not talk about, you know, quote-unquote spiritual matters. And then I'd go to the, these meetings and just be, you know, so focused and almost monk-like, you know, just, just like a laser and... By the end of it, I realized, like, well, actually, our last meeting, I'd heard this enough, and I'd relaxed enough. Richard helped me with that enough that, you know, I went out with one of my um, friends from the uh, group. And as I recall, I had uh, four pints of Sierra Nevada Nevada Pale Ale. And and no, I'm not not, uh, a sponsor, but four pints. Is that half a gallon? I can't really think. But usually, I was like, man, I wouldn't be doing that. Like, it's a spiritual retreat, right? We work all day. Go out and, like, yeah, let's go out and have some beers. I went out pleasantly altered, if you will, you know. And usually, like, the next day, I'd be hungover. I'd be like, oh man, why did I do that? Right? Guilt, shame, all that kind of stuff. I felt great. And I feel like there was a deeper realization there of, frankly, humanness. Just, yeah, go out and have a beer, dude. It's fine. Like, who you are, you don't have a spiritual self and then a partying self. I mean, It's one thing and it's, it is a party and just, you know, everyone's invited. So just be, you know, be yourself, but, you know, integrate that, you
0: know, it's more authentic. Do you still like to drink sometimes?
1: Uh, definitely. Uh, I was, yeah, I was, um, I didn't drink. Actually, it's interesting. Um, around the time that I woke up, I had a commitment to be sober and, uh, it's interesting. It's, it's quite a story, but, um, don't want to bore anyone with it, but, um, yeah, I was, I was sober for about six years, including the time that I woke up. And it, at some point I realized that alcohol, um, uh, would be helpful and frankly, just grounding. And, um, you know, like I said, I was sort of more in that mountaintop space for a while. And I'm like, yeah, you know, so yeah, I, I like to drink sometimes. And, um, I mean, the craft brewing scene's amazing. I mean, it's, you know, I don't, I don't pound Budweiser like I might have in high school, um, exactly. But, uh, you know, I'll sip a nice uh, IPA or something, and it's wonderful. It's got this aromatic nose, and you can taste yeah. it. It's, it's wonderful.
0: Yeah, the reason I asked is that, uh, you know, yeah. when I learned to meditate, um, I soon found that the way I felt all the time... Couldn't be improved upon by any chemical substance, alcohol or marijuana or anything. It's like mm-hmm. I felt worse if I tried that, something like that, and so I just took completely lost interest in it and never thought about it again. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I guess to each his own, and things are different for different people.
1: Yeah, you know, actually, I will tell you this. Um, currently, my, exp- you know, it's in the moment. It's like, how, how am I, you know, if I drink this substance, what is it doing to me now? You know, next week it might be different. So, again, that's rigidity, right? It's dogma, like I'm not going to drink because it's bad. It's like, well, maybe sometimes it's not. Yeah, what I've noticed is, I mean, it's a CNS depressant, right? Alcohol is central nervous system, yeah. Sure, and I noticed that uh, even now, like I can enjoy it, but lately it seems like, like I've really noticed that it, it's like a damper a little bit. Like I'll feel a higher, kind of a higher energy or more um, present. Um, and I've told you, I was doing some intermittent fasting. Like I find that with the fasting, it's, it's really wonderful. You know, it's sort of a clarity and an energy, uh, it feels really good. <clears throat> and I've noticed that, you know, if I drink, it puts a damper on that. And I think you can sort of play with that or I mean, that's what I'm doing. Um, but it may be useful. like I said, when I woke up, I was completely, st- uh, I want to say stone called sober, whatever that is, but yeah, I was sober. So I think if you listen within yourself and you're like, yes, this serves this serves me right now, then, then yeah. Okay. It is.
0: Let's go back to the whole waking up thing. I, I received an email from somebody a couple weeks ago who said, you can, can clarify your confusion about this waking up thing if you think of it as like water boiling. There's a certain phase transition point at which water boils, 100 degrees centigrade, 212 Fahrenheit and before that it's not boiling, after that it's boiling, uh, turns to steam. And he said it's like that with awakening. There may be many, many degrees of growth of consciousness, as you put it earlier, uh, but there is definitely a specific point at which awakening happens. It's clear, it's unmistakable, it's a clear demarcation. Now others say, you know, Christ said in the Bible that the Kingdom of Heaven sneaks up like a thief in the night. And um, I've heard Adyashanti and some others say that, you know, you can sort of slip into awakening and not really even know that it's happened or know I mark it on a calendar or anything like that because it grows so incrementally. Mm-hmm. So, would you disagree with that or, and say that there, for everyone, there's definitely going to be a point at which there's a, a shift that is unmistakable or what?
1: Well, you said some really interesting things. What did you, uh, Thief in the Night? Was that it?
0: Yeah, Jesus said, I think that's what he might have meant by that allegory sure. that the kingdom of heaven sneaks up like a thief in the night
1: yeah it does you know it, it's interesting because the mind can't grasp it so yeah it, it, it does it's interesting the night before I woke up I um I remember I had a sort of a foreboding a sense of presence or you know I could say light or energy but that you know it's it's like a I would say it's awareness or consciousness something like that it is it is like a light it's just not literally uh like a beam of a light or something and uh, <clears throat> I have to say, when it ha- like after it happened, it was clear that something had happened, and that uh, my partner at the time um, uh, asked me what had happened. She could feel it. It was interesting. It actually happened while I was sleeping. I was, you know, I went to sleep. I know Eckhart totally fell asleep and then woke up. You know. Uh, so it's not unprecedented, I guess, but, but I really felt like something was going on the night before and I wasn't, you know, he was suffering tremendously, uh, before that experience. I wasn't, I, I was on a deliberate path. So I've been doing a lot of practices and felt again, a sense of, um, I don't know, foreshadowing, whatever. And then, so when I, when I woke up literally out of sleep, um, man, it, everything was different. It was like, like it woke up it looks around and the self's kind of hanging around but like like it gets up goes in the bathroom looks in the mirror um I'm looking I'm looking and yet who am I it's like Ramana Maharshi like there aren't any words for that um and it's looking at itself and so did I know what that was no i mean did i know like oh i just woke up no but what happened was I, I, I left the bathroom, just kind of astounded, you know, just really open and just not knowing. Came back, went back in the room, and, and she woke. She had gotten up too, I and mean, I could tell, I could feel her there. She was like, something had just happened, you know. I could feel that sort of sense. I think she said, "What happened? Like, what? What happened? What just happened? Something like that." And I said. Okay, so the thought came up. This is like the old, the old man. Uh, uh, I, I knew William Samuel by the way. I don't know if you knew that, but he used to say, "Man whose breath is in his nostrils." Um, you know, so the old man, you know, the mortal man or whatever, the thinking part. Uh, she said, "What happened?" And I could hear the thought, like, "Well, I woke up. I woke up, and I went to the bathroom, and I looked in there, and it was really weird. And oh my gosh, what is that?" But it was just thoughts, right? But what's interesting is it. So I was going to say I woke up and did all this stuff and what I said was I woke up. I mean, I didn't... I mean, who said that? Who is that? I still... I would say I don't know and yet it's the not knowing that's grounded in beingness that that just... It's apparent and yet it isn't an object of thought. So did I know what that was? Heck no. And yet it it is evident. So to answer your question, I would say they're kind of both true. Like you don't... Like I saw Adya one time, um, I saw him in Tucson, I don't know, it was within a year or two after I woke up. And I was curious about it to see what he was like, because I hadn't met him before. And I was listening to him. And I heard that, you know, I, I heard him basically acknowledge that it's it's an event. You know, it is a it is a transition. Um, but the idea that you're going to somehow know in, in, in terms of like conceptual cognition that you've arrived, that's, no, that's not it that at all.
0: And Sometimes people can have some real explosive or profound or dramatic spiritual experiences or shifts. Mm-hmm. And how would one know that that's it, or that that wasn't just something? I mean, mm-hmm. even referencing Adya, he, he's spoken about you know, how easy it is for a person to sort of have a realization and f- figure that's the final thing where mm-hmm. it's actually not. And one can hang out in that place for quite a while before realizing that perhaps that wasn't final.
1: Yeah, it's a good. It's a really good point. Like I said, the thought doesn't arise. That's the clearest way I could put it. Like it's just not true.
0: Like what what thought doesn't arise?
1: The thought. Well, am I? You know, am I there? Am I there? You know. I mean, it's funny because I just had. You know, that's a thought, right? But it's just. So there's not. a confidence a natural confidence? It's like, is the Earth flat? Rick, is the <laughs> Earth flat, Rick? It's like. Let's t- you know, it's like no. It, it just reality is. It is funny. I mean, it's interesting. Like reality is, and. You know, there's all these thoughts, and they're just—they're not true, and yet they're relatively—they can be relatively true. That's what's interesting is there is a relative truth. Like, could you pass me the salt? That's a relative truth, and to deny that is ridiculous. Like we talked about, like we're in a restaurant, you know, hand me the water. You know, of course, it exists in some sense. So,
0: among your fellow students with Richard, or among your own students, um, have there been? awakenings, uh, akin to what you experienced? I don't know. Don't people talk about them?
1: Uh, I'm not really, well, I'm in touch with a few, uh, I'm in touch with a, a few of really, really, there's probably just one, uh, friend that I had in the group that I'm kind of in touch with, like on Facebook. Um, I haven't sought them out and that's, I would like to, I probably will at some point, Um, and I'll ask them,
0: yeah. I guess the reason I asked that question is, uh, you know, whether there was a similarity in their orientation to what happened because of the path they were on or the the tradition they were in, you know?
1: Yeah, okay, yeah, you were talking about, like, big experiences, like a lot of energy and, like, kundalini explosions and things. Now, again, I listened to Richard's... uh, interview and I know him well, and I've read about it and read the black butterfly and, um, my sense of what he went through and I'm willing to be wrong about this, but my sense is that, and you guys talked about this. It was interesting. His path was not what you might call a deliberate path. I mean, it was, but he admits that he wasn't quite sure what it was he was doing at the time. He was, he was experimenting with energy and healing. And, um, you know, he met Franklin Merrill Wolf, um, as I recall, in the Black Butterfly, I mean that's something. <laughs> so you meet Franklin merrill Wolf. Maybe may and,
0: you should say who he was. Most people won't know who he was.
1: Uh, sure, he was. Um, if I have a lineage, I would say Richard's my teacher, and Franklin Merrow Wolf was his teacher. And I, I would, frankly, I would say that um, Franklin merrill Wolf's teacher was Shankara, because he, if you read his book *Experience in Philosophy*, he he really penetrated those texts and, and entered a deep meditation. That's why the second chapter of my book is called study, because sometimes I think people think that just reading is not very useful for spiritual progress. But it really is if if you bring a certain focus to it. And I feel that that's that's largely what he was doing. So, yeah. So Shankara, Franklin Merwolf, Richard, um, he was um, we could talk all day about Franklin, but he was a brilliant mathematician. I think he was at Harvard. And he studied mathematics to the point where he realized that that realm of study in the university, like he was on a tenure track, he could have just written his own ticket, but he he intuitively recognized that that it was limited, and he wanted to know truth. He wanted to realize truth itself. So he left, and he moved to the base of Mount Whitney because someone had said, uh, some sage had said that The place with the greatest spiritual power is uh, the the tallest peak in that country. So at the time before Alaska was added, um, you know, it it was Mount Whitney, California. So he lived at the base of Mount Whitney. And that's where he, you know, where he woke up and did his work. And it's still there. The center is still there. I haven't been there yet, but yeah. He's highly philosophical. He's he's. It may not be everyone's cup of tea in that form, you know, that it's it's, it's very rational, but it's extremely precise, and I found it uh, highly useful.
0: Mm. Yeah. So, so, speaking of your book, um, let's go through the the main chapter titles of
1: your book, and and um, oh, can I say one thing real quick? Yeah, I, I'm I don't really think very linearly, so I'm coming back to something. Um, so the big energy experiences, like you said, I think. See, I was prepared. So Richard. Richard went through that. He, he was prepared, but like he says in his interview, he, he wasn't led through it. He wasn't spoon fed or handheld really with a teacher through a process. I was, and I, I'm grateful to him because I think it was because of the difficulties that he had after his opening. I mean, he talks about that, how, how destabilizing it was. That um, it's thanks to him that frankly, when I woke up, it was, it was actually quite easy. I mean, there's a lot of energy. There were some things that happened that were kind of mind-blowing, if you will. Just a lot of energy, and you know, kind of a destabilization. But I felt, in a sense, I felt him there. I felt a presence that that had led me all along, and in a sense, it ushered me across that threshold with great kindness. And so, it doesn't have to be difficult. But so, I think if there, so yeah, if it's a more spontaneous thing, I think it it. Uh, can be a lot more dramatic and destabilizing because the mind hasn't quite been prepared for that yet.
0: Nor the physiology. I mean, right. it takes a certain physiological purity and strength to sustain or maintain, mm-hmm. to embody awakening and the energies that come with that. And if people haven't done any sort of work in that area, uh, it's you're pouring new wine into an old wineskin, to use mm-hmm. another biblical metaphor. And, uh, you, can can you can do it. You can be very problematic. Sorry to talk over you there.
1: Yeah, it is problematic. Like, it's kind of like having an old car whose frame is bent. And maybe you straighten it so you do some work, you know, get straight psychologically. Um, and, but maybe it's not totally straight yet. And take, then take it out on the freeway, you know, take it up to 100, see what happens. You know, it might rattle, you know, can you get there? So the early stages of work, I usually call, well, there's like a level two, it's in the book, it's just a way of looking at it. But, um, you get straightened out earlier on so that, you know, when you enter like a, like when I did the mentor program with Richard, I'd been prepared a bit. So it's like, it's, it's like acceleration. There's a lot more energy things. Change happens really fast and it is destabilizing. But if, if you get that, so like, yeah, if you get your vehicle and you really straighten it out and tune it up, it might be off slightly, but you can really, you know, you could go a hundred on the freeway and it'll be re- a relatively smooth journey.
0: Yeah, somebody once asked Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, "Can't you just enlighten us like that?" You know, and <laughs> and he said, "Maybe maybe I could, but it would take ten strong men to hold you down."
1: Right? Would, would <laughs> that I could, right? I mean, just, yeah. sure, why not? But yeah, I mean, maybe we're here to enjoy the journey, and that, that's I've written about that. That I started to enjoy it uh, closer to the end of the path. The earlier parts are pretty difficult and, and kind of humiliating, you know, to the ego, but. Uh, you know later on I, it, it was enjoyable like I said I was doing the work of Byron Katie and I noticed that when I would do some of that work I would feel better but I would feel ha- happier but not just happy but like there was a joy and it, you know it just it was wonderful and I was like wow I'm just going to keep doing that you know just keep going and that's what happened
0: I think it should be enjoyable in the long run I mean there might be a dark night of the soul thing where you no longer drive enjoyment from the things you used to and yet you haven't found a adequate inner enjoyment to sort of really, you know, fulfill you. Um, and so there's a dry period, but ultimately I think the whole spiritual path and feel free to differ, but uh, the whole spiritual path is uh, largely about, um, greater happiness. Sure. Um,
1: But can you, you, can you really be happy if you're not free? See, that's, what's interesting. People want to be happy. I've been thinking about this. Everyone wants to be happy. I mean, I think if you, um, actually googled this the other day. It's kind of silly, but I'm like, what do people want more than anything else? And just to see what would come up. And some people, you know, the freedom is there, but then, but happiness is really what people want. Well, I want to be rich. I want to be successful. I want to, I want to be loved and all this. And it's basically because people want to be happy, right? But you know what? It's not enough because if you're not free, you can't really be happy because in a sense, you're a slave. And that sounds harsh, perhaps, but Kant talked about that, right? If you're, so it's the second noble truth if if you're if there's desire it's like you're being driven by unconscious forces it's like an addiction you know and if you're driven by an addiction it's miserable and at some point so ego is like an addiction it's it's an addictive or compulsive attachment to self like that's self is who i am and, and you can't not do it that's what compulsive means it's like an addict cannot not do it but with help you you become free of that And if you're truly free of all that, free of ego, then, yeah, why not be happy? So I feel like, you know, it is the way to happiness. It's just interesting because, like, wouldn't you choose to be happy? And can you choose to be happy if you're not free? It's just something to think about, something that came to the other day. Yeah,
0: and what you're asking, what you're saying kind of begs the question, well, where does happiness come from? What is the essential ingredient of happiness? You know, um, does it come from what we experience through our senses if so, it's very um, tentative and, and uh, you know, variable and, and unstable because what we experience through our senses is always going to change. Um, and if it's not what we experience through our senses, um, how come we do get, seem to get happier when we experience a nice thing and less happy when we experience a bad thing? Um, but then uh, can, there be a, can there be found a source of happiness which is independent of what we experience through our senses? you know kind of a a deeper wellspring of happiness and of course yeah spiritual traditions have all talked about this
1: sure i mean well happiness includes sadness you know there's up and down high and low i mean it's the human scene i mean one could say well what about the bliss of nirvana well i'm not talking about that it's different um, but just happiness, like... I'm kind of talking about that. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, let's I mean, talk about of, that then. Um, in
0: terms of ultimately what, yeah. what is really going to um, fulfill the human craving for happiness, I don't know if anything else ultimately will.
1: I agree with that. What's funny about it, though, is you have to let go of happiness in order to have it. Yeah. You have to let go... I mean, there's nirvanic like bliss, and then there's... You know, it's like there's nirvana and samsara and mm-hmm. they're the same. Yeah. I mean it's, it's it's it sounds that's you know Franklin Merrill wolf if you read uh so his book is Experience and Philosophy if you know he t- if you look at his um part of that book is called uh Philosophy on Consciousness Without an Object. It's really it's really worth reading. And it, you know he talks about that he says You know his summation is something like, besides the great space, there is no other. Um, But before that, he talks about how you know there's nirvana and there's samsara, and yet from the perspective of that, again, transcendent consciousness, they're the same. That's why the third mountain position can't be dualistic if you're awake, because you know you're eating a hamburger, and yet is there someone? You know, it's both true and not true at the same time. I'm not sure if I'm addressing your point. I just think there's like so you're talking about bliss. I think that's tempting, you know, to think bliss is the point. I mean, bliss is okay, but I have to say, when I woke up, it was it was you know, it's peaceful. I mean, do you want to be, do you want to be blissed out all the time, or do you want to be pe- at, at peace, like that, just free? Um, yeah. Bliss is great. It's just you know, I like bliss too. You know,
0: <laughs> I think what I'm saying is yeah.
1: that not that um, I mean, blissed
0: out implies a sort of like a slightly overwhelming kind of situation. Um, I, I think there's a, there's a sort of a, a baseline of contentment. It's mm-hmm. called santosh in, in Sanskrit, which characterizes the the awakened state, and um, which is independent of changing experiences and circumstances mm-hmm. and um, you know which there's this there's a, s, uh, there's a, a saying a, what was it contact with Brahman is infinite joy and it's kind of this juxtaposition of the awakened consciousness with relative experience that stirs up waves of, of bliss the way sloshing around in a bathtub stirs up the warmth Sure. If you've been lying too still, you don't feel the warmth anymore. Slosh around a bit, you begin to stir it. So I, I'm just kind of saying this stuff because people talk about, you know, being able, being enlightened and yet being depressed or neurotic or this and that. And, you know, I, I wonder whether such people are, have really worked it out and that, uh, you know, perhaps the more traditional, the, the Zen monk, you know, with his hands in the air laughing with a big pot belly, sure. is, is actually more characteristic of what true enlightenment or
1: full enlightenment really is mm-hmm. yeah chop wood carry water totally. yeah it's just like i said it's it's um there's that realization of freedom and then or nirvana you know if you want to call it that and then yeah and then sure chop wood carry water i mean that's yeah i mean i do feel part of it is i don't control it you know i say i it really does come back to who am i you know I would say I don't know, and that's there's wisdom in that. It's just it's what I am is unknowable, and yet its relationship with form, yeah, it's really it's pleasurable. It can be, it can be unpleasant. It could be blissful in a sense, but to me that's um, yeah, it does stir up a certain kind of uh, enjoyable sensation, maybe. And, well, let's and, say in
0: your darker okay. moments, when some, even now, yeah. when if something happens in your life, or I don't know, you, you're sick, or something yeah. happens, um, yeah. do you, do you still discern a dimension in your life which is untouched by those things and which sustains you in a way which you know, forty years ago, thirty years ago, if you had been under similar circumstances and bereft of that dimension. You would have felt the full impact of of the negative thing with no buffer, with no sort of foundation, to, uh, you know, that to to modify or, or you know, to put the 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 relative experience in a larger context.
1: Right. I mean, I agree with what you just said. That's basically how it is. Like, um, yeah, I get sick sometimes, and it's it's really unpleasant. It can be overwhelmingly painful, depending on what it is. And in those moments the pain or the unpleasantness certainly dominates the field of awareness and yet there is that sense of detachment that's there yeah
0: it's not the entirety of who and what right. of your experience yeah yeah
1: and it doesn't judge it's funny cuz the 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 self like ego wants to judge but it it you know when you're awake it's like it again i don't know if you can see my hand but so judgments like I want this or I don't want that. You know, it's, it's, a t- you know, desire and aversion and attachment. So an unpleasant experience comes up. We usually, what, we pull away from it, right? You know, we're, I don't want that. So we're, it's over there and we're trying to, and it's based in uh, a judgment. I find that doesn't arise. So, and yes, it does add to the misery if you're judging it. When the judgment doesn't arise, it's almost like, it's like a flower. <laughs> so the mind still runs. You know, as as the heart pumps blood, the mind pumps thoughts. So it's arising, and it's as if awareness sees it. It's like, yeah, it's not true. And yet, when it's really painful, the body's cringing, the nervous system is like, oh, oh. You know, it could be. And yet, there's no judgment of that. So it's it's yeah, it's allowing a human experience. Uh, and yeah, it's it's wonderful. I would, you know, I'm not going to say that I don't feel pain. That would be silly. Sure. But I mean- who feels? See, who feels pain? Right. That's what's interesting. I heard that you know a lot about Ramana Maharshi. I believe hearing, hearing you speak, I'm, I'm not an expert. But... I know a bit. I and mean, historically, my understanding is that he he had cancer at the end of his life, right? Mm-hmm. Like, of course, who had cancer, you know? Um, and that I don't think he sought medical attention for that, did he? Is that how to
0: read that? He, people, he let people do all kinds of things to him, you know, whatever right. the whatever they wanted to do, and uh, he he wasn't seeking it, but all. Concerned people were all tending to him and trying different things.
1: Sure. And they but he didn't, he didn't he
0: didn't get morphine or anything to, you know, muffle his pain.
1: Yeah, it seems like I read somewhere that his quote was, let it grow. <laughs> yeah. Which, like, really? <laughs> but, you know, from that really, from that oceanic consciousness, it's nothing. Yeah. Um, and yet, me, I mean, me did you he experience pain? You might, of... Like, R- uh, Sri Ramana, are you in pain? to whom does that thought arise? You know, To whom does the uh-huh. sensation arise? Yeah, I get that.
0: Yeah. I think here's an example that'll wrap up this point, And that sure. is that, let's say you had $10 to your name and you lost five or you gained five. Somebody gave you five. That'd be a big deal. You know, that'd be like mm-hmm. significant change in your financial status. But let's say you had just won the lottery. Somebody just won the lottery the other night, got 300 and something million dollars. Mm-hmm. And then somebody gives you five or you lose five. It's like, what does it matter? In the context of my financial status, it doesn't really, it's not that significant. I think that we can use that as a metaphor for kind of an awakened consciousness and its orientation to the, the gains and losses in life relative to an unawakened consciousness, which doesn't really have the the capacity to sustain major gains and losses without being
1: shaken. I think that's a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> about my um, book, you're going to ask me about the book. So I, I was.
0: I mean, you. you have a bunch of chapters, and each one of these words that constitutes a chapter title is an interesting area for discussion. And um, by the so, way, I, mm-hmm. I'm
1: interrupting you to, just to say we there was some discussion uh, prior to this about maybe I would send you a copy or something. Um, the reason I didn't is it's it's pretty. It's a hundred thousand words. It's three hundred pages, <laughs> and I just, you know, I figured. I don't know I figured to read that entire thing and assimilate it in what a week. You know, I just didn't.
0: oh I wouldn't have. You would have had to say read you know pages 35 through 38 and 45 to you know like that. Sure. I, I wouldn't have read all of it. Yeah. <laughs> but that's okay. But the chapter titles are nice. Now I'll read them quickly, all 10 of them, and then we can maybe mm-hmm. poke around through them. So yeah. honesty, study, instruction, action, commitment, embodiment, meditation, community, life, devotion. And this is called the ten paths to freedom. So, are you presenting these as autonomous, independent paths, or stages in an overall system, or, or what are you what are you saying here with these words?
1: Yeah, um, yeah. Each one could be used in itself, and if you read the introduction, which I recommend, it, it explains that. Uh, of course, you didn't have a copy, so. But but I mean, for anyone who's watching this, it's. Yeah, it's definitely worth reading, and I would read the introduction, and, you know, it's, like I said, there's a way of of reading that's more in-depth and more focused. It's not just the thoughts or the words. It's like there's a depth. So, um, Yeah, it's interesting because what I would say is it's a linear, when I wrote it, I started writing this a couple of years after I woke up, and like I said, I was really in that more mountaintop perspective, and the main thing that book is about is how did I get there? so to speak, right? There's, there is no one and no one gets anywhere. We all agree on that. But basically, that's how I got there. And it, it is a linear, I think it's important to read it in a linear fashion. If you just jump in the middle, it might not make sense because I defined terms early on. But if you read the whole thing, you're like, okay, and you kind of take that in. And once you get to that whole thing, then you, yeah, you could read, uh, you could use one chapter of the other, like chapter seven's meditation. Yes, you can use that by itself. And yet what's interesting is like frankly every chapter could be looked at as a form of meditation. So it's it's really nonlinear and yet if you read it I would recommend starting at the beginning and going all the way through. Mm.
0: Well read? let's let's discuss some of these just sure. for fun and see what come out of it. So uh, honesty, for instance. Um would you say that honesty is a, an important starting point for a person and if they're gonna embark on the spiritual path, um or if they're already embarked and, and maybe haven't really taking care of that area of their life they should
1: yeah um that was really important for me i read a book called radical honesty by brad blanton um i don't agree with everything he says in it but one of my mentor friends a student had gone to one of his seminars and he told me about it and i was like wow i gotta check this guy out because he's if you if you look at him you know how blanton lives uh, I haven't looked at it lately, but he's just brutally honest, you know, and I, I don't always agree with that, that you're almost to the point of cruelty, you know, but, but basically I read the book and I realized I just could sense that that was important for me this is when I was a student. So I embraced it. I'm like, I'm going to do that. Right. I'm going to be honest. And like, I think even the same day or the next day, something occurred, something happened, Uh, where I realized that I was, I would have lied about it before. It was subtle and I was like, oh man, I can't do that. That's, but I'd committed to it. So I told the truth about it. What had happened is a good friend of mine came by. My apartment was a mess. I mean, it was like a train wreck. I felt bad about it. And he came by and knocked on the door. I realized I'm like, oh man, I can't let him in. This place is terrible. And, uh, I love this guy, you know, he's a good friend. And so he knocked and knocked and then went away and my car was in the driveway. So, yeah. You know, yeah. Or, you know, maybe I went for a walk or something. Um, so he called me later and I'm like, Oh man, I got to tell him. Like I knew I'd read that book. I'd committed and I'm like, Oh man, I got to tell him the truth. I'm like, all right, I'll do it. And it's hard to do. It's embarrassing. See, that's part of that. E- like ego has got to be seen and it's unpleasant. So he, um, yeah, he said, hey i I drove by earlier and uh your car was there I you know knocked on the door and didn't answer what you know what's going on immediately like I knew that what I would have said before it's terrible I know but it's what I would have said was oh yeah, I was in the shower you know or something don't we all do that or I've all done it probably and I said, you know what um his name is John I said John i I was there and I heard you knocking and I was just embarrassed. My place is a mess and I didn't want to let you in. And he he said, oh, man, that's okay, You know, and I understand that. And gosh, it was a relief. It was like, wow, I don't have to hide anymore. And and also I'm like, I really want my friend to come visit. So I had to clean the place up. And and if I hadn't embraced that, I I don't think I would have done it. There are other examples. But yeah, it's it was liberating quite a bit. a bit and people won't like it i mean i remember i was single um quite a bit in that at that time and i would go out go out on dates sometimes and you know i'd meet someone and like yeah i'm into this thing called radical honesty it's amazing and i start i talk a little bit i'd never see him again you know like looking at the watch like "Eh, i don't know um it's just but you know eventually you meet someone that says really that's awesome and you know that's the person you want to be with so
0: that's great yeah and uh there's a saying in, in Sanskrit uh, you know, that says, it comes down to something like, speak the truth which is sweet, yeah. and um, right. you know, um, obviously there, there was a story of Winston Churchill running into some woman at a party, and, and he walked up to the woman and he said, Madam, you're the ugliest person I've ever, I've ever met, and she said, Mr. Churchill, you're drunk. And he said, yes, but in the morning I'll be sober, yet you'll still be the ugliest person I've ever Oh, my met. God. <laughs> and so, you know, maybe that, yeah. and obviously that was his subjective opinion, so it's not necessarily even truth. Um, but I think people can get kind of um, in your face in the name of honesty sometimes. And
1: <laughs> Yeah, the teacher, I mean, my experience with Richard, frankly, uh, he basically, I mean, I'm speaking just about him. I'm, I would think that any authentic teacher would probably be like this but like basically ego gets reflected back how does that work I'm not sure but it does and you, it, every time I talked and when I first started working with him it changed over time I had to had to grow past that right but I mean I couldn't live like that I had to I had to do it but um yeah when I first started working with him it's like everything I said sounded like idiocy and it you know it was I mean on some level it was just blah, blah, me, me, and I'm like, and it, but it, I didn't really notice it unless I was speaking to him, and he would just look at me. I mean, that's not cruel. That's that's honest. Um, where I, It was like, it's like a space where you hear yourself, you know, like a canyon where it reflects back, and you're like, oh my God, is that what I sound like? And it's wonderful, I mean, if you use it, or if, you know, if ego wins that particular battle, you'll, you know, you could blame the teacher, yeah. which I don't recommend because that's, you know, it doesn't get you anywhere.
0: Well, let's take another example. Let's say you're married or you're in a committed relationship. I don't know what the legal status is here. Let's say you find yourself befriending someone else and, you know, there was some, a friendship growing. You know, would you just tell your partner, hey, this friendship is growing or would you think, all right, I'm just gonna deal with this somehow and not necessarily put this in her face and somehow come to terms with this situation rather than really, you know, rock the
1: boat. You can rock it a little bit, right? It's It's the middle way, right? You don't want to rock it too much. Yeah, you want to be honest. I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't, like, you haven't met Allie, but my partner Allie and I, um, yeah, I I would tell her something like that. I mean, to me, and this is sort of a, you know, in the book I lay it out quite systematically, but you know what I call basic honesty is telling the truth, and it means not misrepresenting your experience. So you know I see what looks like an orange globe on your bookcase there. That's yeah, like one of those salt globe things. Yeah, there's a there's yeah. an orange globe on your bookcase that mm-hmm. matches my experience. We probably both agree on that, so that's mm-hmm. basically honest.
0: But human there's, relationships are more complicated. And, well, yeah, there's a there's another level. And, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Nuanced, I said, yeah.
1: Yeah, right, the next level, if you will, is, you know, not just telling the truth, but when do you tell it, to whom do you tell it, why, you know, who's around that might hear it, there's all these things, and you have to listen a little more, you have to be like, okay, is it appropriate,
0: maybe some privacy,
1: yeah, so I call it it situational honesty, which sounds like you would, it doesn't mean that you change the truth to fit the situation, it means Mm -hmm. that you, you just notice what your situation is.
0: Yeah. So do you think that dishonesty um, and it's not a black and white situation as you just said but do you think that some sort of habitual tendency to dishonesty erodes the person erodes the sort of integrity of the personality in such a way that is that creates an impediment to spiritual progress
1: Yes it's a I would say it's a way of hiding Cuz if you're honest you'll you'll start saying stuff like I said um I used to hide from my father that way. That was one of the scariest things. That was shortly after I read that book. And I was in the mentor program at the time. So a lot of this, I mean, there's a lot going on. There was a stage in my life where I felt moved intuitively, completely intuitively, and I had no idea why. I moved to Las Vegas. Why? I don't know. Let me get into that. But I could feel it. It It was true, and my mind was like, yeah, but, yeah, but, no, no. And finally, I was. it was so painful to resist it. I said, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to listen. I'm going to do it. Why? I don't know. But when I had lunch with my father. And uh, this is the last time I actually lived in my hometown. I left. I never went back after this. It was important. I mean, I visited, but I didn't live there after that. Anyway, so we're having lunch. And um, I just said, I said Dad, and it was hard to do to say this, but I said, Dad, I'm moving to Las Vegas because God wants me to. <laughs> and he, you know what he did? He he had this thing where he'd put it. He'd go like he'd go like this. Oh no, you know, over his food, like. And yet, put, then he put his head know, in his
0: hand. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I was like, part of me was scared, you know, but I did it, and um, took courage, you know. And then, then he said, "Oh well, we'll we'll deal with it. We'll work it out." I'm like, "Wow, that was easy," you know. Actually, you know what I mean? It's like we we tend to hide. So that opened up all kind of stuff for me. Mm. If you can be honest with your parents, it's hard to do, but, you know. Yeah. And We're, I'll add one more thing. Ram,
0: Ram Dass yeah. said that if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your parents.
1: Exactly. Go home for the holidays. <laughs> you think you're awake, go home for the holidays. Yeah. And, yeah, it's it can be it can be fun, it can be unpleasant, it can be happy. It's all kind of stuff. But basically, you love them, and right? And that's the, the basis. But um, there's one more level of honesty that I'll get to real quick, which I call absolute honesty. And... That's just a term, but basically what it means, it's basically what meditation is. It's what consciousness is. So there's, okay, so there's telling the truth and then there's knowing when and where and to whom, right? You get that straightened out. Then you have thoughts arising. Absolute honesty is seeing that no thought is absolutely true. And so again, I'm making this gesture. It's like thoughts arise and what do we usually do? Ego's like, oh, you know, some form of, I don't want this or I do want that. And it just, it, you know, it's, it's like this narcissist thing, you know, in our thoughts, but conscious process where you in your meditation, the thought arises and you just see it as empty. You see it as, it may have relative truth, but it doesn't have any absolute truth. And, um, I think that's important. So that's, yeah. Yeah. That and if you're lying, important. I think if you're lying habitually, I don't think you can really do that. I don't think you can get to the place where you just clearly witness your thoughts arise because you're too busy hiding. So yeah, you have to get it straightened
0: out. You're creating some kind of deep complexity in your uh, in your Mm -hmm. structure that is not conducive to resting as in in the simplest form of awareness. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's worth adding that there's a lot of again in the I don't know, but in the Vedic literature at least, there's a lot of Emphasis on on that. There are people who who are so much into their honesty that if they say something, they have to do it no matter what. Like Ramana, you know. I mean, not Ramana, Ram, Ram in the Ramayana. Okay. He, he he committed to um, going to the forest, and and so had to do it. He had to do it because he he couldn't go back on his word. Or in the um, in the Mahabharata, um, you know. Uh, the Pandavas, the five brothers, brought home this woman that they had found on their journeys or whatever. And they they said, Hey, Mom, you know, look look what we brought home and and their mother's in the kitchen. She said, Well, whatever it is, share it equally among you. And... It was this woman, so they, she became the <laughs> wife of all five because her mother yeah. could. they couldn't disobey their mother. She had said it. It had to be. <laughs> there you go.
1: Yeah.
0: They had other wives, too, in addition to <laughs> one. Okay, so enough on honesty. Um, incidentally, yeah. those who are listening, and there's about 140 of them now or something, if you have a question that you'd like to ask, there's a question form on the bottom of the upcoming interviews page on batgap.com. Um, second of your points is study, and you touched upon this earlier Mm -hmm.
1: and um it's it's like letting the meaning penetrate the words you know there's a deeper meaning you know to the degree that a text was written from a place of consciousness so you know whatever that is so it could be someone who's awake or someone who just is very conscious either way and again is honest i mean so it builds on the first chapter so it's basically honest and there's a degree of consciousness coming through yeah. Um, and when you also that, when you say de- study do
0: you mean like yeah. studying spiritual teachings and texts and things like that? That so is basically
1: what it is, right? Yeah. And I talk about that there's like see there's a relative and an absolute value and and so in Tibetan Buddhism they call this the two truths, okay? So there's really only one reality, one truth, we know that. But there's this relative appearance and so we're dealing with that. That's the pe- you know, Rick would you pass me the water? That's the relative truth. Absolute truth is Brahman, right? It's I am that. Um, so you you know you're reading for like if you're reading for entertainment, like a novel, you're just reading. It's just basically relative level. There's some feelings, emotions you might have. If you're reading a, a spiritual text, say you're reading *Crest Jewel Discrimination*, which is fantastic, by the way. If no one's read that, Shankara. Um, it's like as you penetrate it, it'll penetrate you in a sense. Sounds funny, maybe, but there's a depth of it. That's like I said, Franklin Merrill Wolfe was studying. I forget what he was reading when he woke up at first. It was a commentary. He wrote a lot of commentaries on the um, Upanishads, but it will. Uh, Frank, well, no, um, yeah, Shankara wrote a lot of commentaries on the Upanishads, but um, say like Crest Jewel, for example, it's really clear philosophically, and yet, and that's important that relative level of just clarity of thinking and yet there's a depth because of who's writing it and from which place it's being written and they're both going on at the same time so actually it's a it's a form of meditation yeah
0: I, th- I guess my thought on study is that it's the that um, spiritual progress or if you want to call it that mm-hmm. uh, definitely has a knowledge component as well as an experience component and um, right. without the knowledge, experience can be misinterpreted. One mm-hmm. can have an awakening, and it can be a source of confusion and fear if one doesn't know what it is. I mean, you yourself said when you first awoke, you didn't think you didn't know what what this was. And too much study without the experiential component can get lopsided. You know, you can just get all hung up in intellectual ideas and mistake those for actual realization or experience. So, but there's a kind of a you know. Step by step process where it's nice if the if uh, knowledge and experience can go hand in hand. I think.
1: I agree with that. That's basically yeah. what Chapter Two is about.
0: Right. Good. Okay. And instruction is an, is a sort of a a, a natural follow up from study. I guess it's like you're meaning you're getting some guidance from an actual person rather than just trying to figure it out on your on your own from a book.
1: Right. I would call that just as. Look, these are just conventions, so let's not get hung up on it. But a level one, I call a level one is you're studying. You haven't met, you haven't literally met uh, an awakened teacher in person. It's very different. I mean, I met Richard and it's, you know, when I met him, when I first met him, that's a, a different, it's a different quality. Uh, they're both important. So, yeah, I'm going to say one more thing about study before we abandon it. Um, it's not just text, it's also videos. So Sure, in this, in this day and age. you're watching <laughs> Yeah. Well, YouTube is really useful I'm, and there's a way of listening within yourself as you're hearing this conversation for example. And you're right, it's a, you know, there's an intellectual component and then there's an awareness component that's has a depth to it. Yeah, so chapter 3 instruction. I know that there's some disagreements sometimes about whether a teacher is necessary. I would say really what happens, see we have an inner teacher. I usually capitalize the term. Like, you have your school teacher from third grade. That's lowercase t. Fine. Um, unless unless you happen to be awake. No, I'm kidding. That'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? Your third grade teacher is awakened. Uh... No, but anyway. Um, I don't think mine was. Anyway, Sorry, Mrs. Stewart. Anyway, so... Um, yeah, so it's an inner capacity we all have. For awakening and you know they say when the student is ready that master appears or something that's what it's like it's it's as if it's like it appears outside you but it's not like if this is a dream and you're trying to wake up from the dream like i really want to wake up i'm really sincere get honest do some study teacher appears when i found richard's book the eye that is we his first book it was random I thought it was someone else. There was a guy named Rick Moss who did some kind of work um, in uh, in Texas, like in Austin. I yeah, I knew him.
0: I knew him actually. He was an old TM teacher back in the day.
1: Oh, cool! Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I'd seen him present, and I'm like, oh, cool! He wrote wrote a book, and it said Richard Moss, you know, Rick Richard. Pull it off the shelf. I opened to page one. I'm like, whoa, what is this? Just and really, frankly, a transmission just just bodily. Just oh my gosh! And I just devoured it and so on. Um, like, what made that appear? It was was it random? You know, I don't like I don't know, but I think that if you're ready and you're sincere, help will come.
0: Oh yeah, it, I mean, I, I've yeah. spoken to people who you know they walk into a bookstore, and they're walking down the aisle, and a book falls on the floor. They pick it up, and it's Ramana You know, it's like, right. what's going sure.
1: on? Yeah. So is a teacher necessary? <laughs> well, no, not really. I mean, look at Eckhart Tolle. Well, it's spontaneous, right? I don't think he,
0: don't, but somebody told me he had a yeah. lot more seeking phase before his awakening than he lets on in, in the power of now, but who
1: knows? Yeah, I think he was an intellectual. He talks about that. He was a student, you know, a university student in England, but um, yeah, I mean, who knows? I'm just saying that what I would say, and I touched on this earlier, but the, the basic thing is that having a teacher makes it easier. Like, why not avail yourself of that help? It does not mean... Now, find someone... I, I write about this. It is really important to discern true from false. It's just how it is. I mean, look at Jim Jones. I mean, do I need to say anymore? more? Like, just don't go there. But, you know, there may be more subtle forms of that. And just... Basically, you have to listen within yourself. And if you're honest and you've studied, you know, it is a process that, like, you get a certain degree of clarity and you learn... It's almost like a flavor. You, you know, you... It's not a taste. It's but it, like this is true. This is real. Yes, you get that, and then but then you you don't check your intellect. At, check your intellect at the door. You continue to participate, and it takes a lot of trust. And if signs of abuse come up, which you mentioned, someone, uh, yeah, get out of there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got an email from somebody recently who who said basically. You interview all these bozos, you know, and none of them are enlightened. Why haven't you interviewed my teacher? My teacher is really enlightened. um, I don't know about that person's teacher, but the, the whole, my attitude in doing this is that everybody's a work in progress. I don't know if anybody's ultimately finished, but in this day and age... You know, it does seem, as Thich Nhat Hanh said, that the Buddha is the Sangha. You know, that there are mm. hundreds and hundreds of spiritual teachers all doing their thing. It's bad Mo- Yeah, it's bad guy, And most of them have something to offer to people who resonate with them somebody might like totally resonate with you others like I don't get this guy I'm not interested fine then you have your niche you know you have your affinity group and I think that's kind of true of all the people I interview and and you know some might stay with a teacher for a long time others might you know hopscotch a bit from one to the next and as long as they're not being a dilettante and just dabbling and not really going deep with somebody but really all right this guy's taught me everything I need to know I'm going to move on I think in this day and age it that's the nature of it.
1: Well, you mentioned Adi Die. I I don't want to get into that too much. When I read *Method of the Siddhas*, his first book, I just it really affected me. I mean, it's very powerful. I thought, you know, we might disagree on whether you know it's quality or so on, but I will say that his the community around him was a bit strange, and um, I don't mean any disrespect to him. It's just. I don't know it didn't feel right you know and and so i write about that in this chapter that you can sort of investigate and see what it's about and then if it's not for you you can respectfully back away i mean it doesn't you don't have to be go online and you know start a flame war about it just it's not for you it's fine no disrespect and then you know and then um that's when i found the eye that is we uh, maybe a couple of years later and richard just worked for me basically
0: sure yeah, I mean, I've interviewed a number of people who were with him: uh, Samuel Bonder, who was one of his top people; um, Sandra Glickman; uh, Mercedes Kirchel; probably a few more. Um, Terry Patton was with him for a long time, and they all have laudable qualities. They they all obviously grew and gained something. But you know, he himself was—he really don't want to get into it. It's just, yeah, let's not go there. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. could get into horror stories. Sure. So. Chapter you know, four, no.
1: Yeah, chapter four. <laughs> action, action. Yeah, action. I, I could just start anywhere. So is there a doer? No. Rick, would you hand me the water? Yes. It's like, they're both true. So, I mean, a lot of this, I just would say that from a, basically the absolute or, con- you say it's just a conscious perspective. Say you're a student and you're working on this. You're becoming more conscious you start to see through ego. You start to see through, you start to relax a little bit. And then there's just, you could say there's just beingness. There's just, we mentioned happiness. Yeah, it's, you're happier. You're like, wow, cool. And maybe you're sad and you're like, oh, sadness is kind of interesting too. You know, and you're just a little more loose and like, you know, hand me the glass of water. It's not a problem, you know, and like if there's, look, if you're embracing dualism, for example, I mean, if you want to, It's going to be unpleasant. Like, you know, if you're attached to a thought that disagrees with reality, you're going to feel it. So you don't have to go around, you know, wondering if things are dualistic or not. I mean, they're basically not. That's the premise. All is one. The world is a mirage or something. But I mean, it's like you're in a bad dream and you're trying to wake up from it. Well, if you're in the dream... You know, it's scary and painful. As you start to wake up, it's like, yeah, and you start, you know, it, it changes. So, um, no, there's not a doer, and yet, I don't know. I know I've heard it said there's no doer. Great. Just don't make that a dogma. Right? It's like, yeah, you know, pass the salt. It's not that big a deal.
0: I think the levels thing, like we were talking about earlier, where, there, yeah, there's a level at which there's no doer. There's a level at which there's a doer. Both are true simultaneously. I mean, taking taking the Gita as a case in point, you know, half the book is Krishna exhorting Arjuna to get up off his butt and fight, and you know, I want you to do this. And right. yet, there's there's whole, whole chapters about how you know, the, the the self-realized being person realizes I do not act at all. Uh, you know, the the gunas of nature are performing action. Mm-hmm. It's not essentially who I am, that is the actor. And then they'll throw in a verse like, you have control over action alone, never over its fruits. You know, so it kind of right. goes back and forth between those perspectives. And I think the only kind of resolution is that in the bigger picture, both are true, and you have to sort of render under Caesar what is Caesar's. And you know, if there's a sense of, of performing action and doership, then honor that on its own level. But if there's also simultaneously a sense that I do not act at all, then that's also true. They're not mutually exclusive.
1: Like when I hear you speak, for example, I'm hearing, honestly, I'm not trying to flatter you. I just, it sounds like there's a clarity, like you've obviously thought about this. You've obviously studied. And there's a certain wisdom that comes through based on your experience and, you know, honesty and so on, um, like an intellectual honesty. And you admit when you don't know things and, you know, we're having this conversation and um, I forget what I was going to say about that. Um, It's like, you know, are you, is, you know, do, is there a doer? I don't know, but, but there's, but you're tr- in a sense transmitting a conscious position where you can get your, you can get yourself out of the way you are, Rick. I mean, I'm saying, you know, based, like I said, there's, there's a degree of consciousness that I'm hearing that really isn't about you. That's what I'm trying to say. And yet you're also, there's a humility where you're like, yeah, I've had this experience in that. And then you'll you know I it is both, but it becomes less intellectual and more about how we live and like the quality of your presence and there's an intellectual precision to what you say and I try to do that too I'm not always good at it there's also a presence and it's just kind of like you get self out of the way a little and you know what I mean it's more honest and then there's a connection there's some kind of we all want that I would say we want connection there's a lot of loneliness and so we listen to each other differently. We're listening into the being, and then like, is there a doer? I don't know, man. Pass the salt. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah.
0: Now if you throw well, it in my
1: head, I might duck, but otherwise, yeah. Pass the salt.
0: Yeah. I mean, my own orientation is just that I, you know, ever since I was a teenager, I've really been lit up by this stuff and have had my attention on it, um, and I, I kind of have this inclusive attitude of all the various components, the intellectual understanding, the experience, the, the morality, all these different things are important components, and you, you can't take any of them in isolation or to the exclusion of the others. And, um, and I very much consider myself a work in progress. Um, I, I, uh, you see a picture of Amma over my shoulder. She often says we should, often, we, we should always have the attitude of a b- beginner, I've heard Adya say that too. Um, I feel so that I, very much. You know, yeah, I kind of feel that. It's like, mm-hmm. and re- and it's. I think it's literally true, not just a sort of a little intellectual safeguard. But relative to beings who may exist in this universe and levels of spiritual development that might be possible, we are all relative beginners. So, um, like,
1: I, know, I don't know just... how to play the bagpipes. I'm sure if I tried, it would be terrible. <laughs> but you yeah. know, you got to start somewhere, right?
0: Sure, and um, and even in the realm of spirituality. That's why I I, I kind of. I'm a little bit. There's two things that bug me. Um, one is people who say they're done, and you know, and they're kind of adamant about that. And another is is people who take opinions as absolute truths. Like they might have a certain attitude about teachers or about some particular thing, and mm-hmm. and it's like this is the way it is. You know, and it's not like this is my perspective, and maybe another perspective would be equally valid. But you know, this is the truth. I, I think that that's a kind of a boxed-in way of living.
1: It could be. I guess the key is not to be one of those people, right?
0: Yeah. And, but the,
1: and not, what, and, and in
0: describing them, not to become one.
1: <laughs> yeah, I will say for your first point there that um, I do in my book, and again, I was I was definitely when I wrote that it was it was like <clears throat> at least ten years ago. It was, it was definitely more, I was more in the mountaintop perspective, which is fine. And it has, it, the book is really about, you know, you're in the valley and you want to get to the peak. After that, I don't say a whole lot about it. Maybe a little. I feel like I'm, whatever I write from here on out, I'll probably address that. Maybe. <clears throat> but um, I want to live it first, right? I do stress that when you're done, you're done. But the, really the question is Who's done? And I don't mean to play a little semantic. And what's game. done? What 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 is, what is? do we mean by done? Suffering. I mean, ego. Let's, let's just call it ego. Ego dies. Now, I could almost hear Richard <laughs> like, oh, you know, like my dad, like, oh, no. <laughs> no, I don't know. What do you think of that? But no, self, okay, here's the thing. This is really important. I've, I've heard misunderstandings. Self, there's still a self. It's just seen as a, you know, like a phantom or a mirage. It is like if I made a shadow puppet, I don't have a light and I'm not good at shadow puppets, but if I made say like a bunny on the wall or a duck or something, um, I could say, Hey Rick, do see do you see the bunny? You'd be like, Yeah, yeah, I see it. But there's no bunny. So there there both is and is not a bunny. it's a concept. It's sort of like when you're watching a movie. You're like, Whoa, did you see that? You know, that guy got shot or something. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, but is that real? Be like, No. <laughs> you know, so you entertain disbelief. I mean, you, what do you suspend disbelief? But when ego's not there, so if ego is a, it's like an addiction. So an addict isn't free, right? An addict, an addict, an addiction is defined as a compulsive behavior, like such as a use of a substance or gambling or something like that. It's compulsive despite negative consequences. That's the textbook definition. And you can't stop. It's compulsive and you need help. Um, Ego's like that, basically. Similar. It's similar. It's a compulsive attachment to self. Self-importance. It could be big self, small self. Look at me, I'm important. Or, oh, I'm insignificant. They're both false. And, and what happens is they wake in perspective. Again, the mudra is like from just freedom. It's like, it is. Is it true? No. I mean, is it relatively true? Sure, why not? Why? Because I'm talking to Rick. It's compassion, it's connection, it's, it's freedom as it's lived in the world. It's like, let's do this together. Let's, come on, let's do this. At the same time, it's like, yeah, none of that's real. And that, that's what gives you the freedom to, it doesn't matter what you do. Um, I mean, that sounds terrible. It's, there is a morality about it. It's like, it doesn't matter. And yet I find that the kindness, generosity, and those sort of virtues that we tend to talk about are natural.
0: You're leading into something here that, I, that yeah. I was going to say, based on this done point, which is that, like you mentioned, um, well, I can't play the bagpipe, bagpipes. Right. But obviously that is a very tangential sort of skill and, and uh, not something that everyone in the world needs to learn, thank God, I mean it would be quite <laughs> cacophony if they all did. But there are certain we're all qualities. doing that
1: metaphorically aren't we <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There there are certain
0: qualities that are so, that we associate with spiritual development and have been historically associated with it like you just mentioned a couple kindness and compassion and I would like to think that um, you know that though there are certain qualities like that that aside from awareness or realization of truth or self that are um, important components of spiritual development and um, that there always may be exceptions and variations and so on and so forth but Mm -hmm. that the um, you know once that ground has been established of being that it's going to begin to percolate into various aspects of the personality and one might find that the heart becomes more and more and more full and blossomed and compassion and love and devotion and qualities like that begin to grow or that the senses begin to become more refined and subtle and in their appreciation of everything and or that behavior begins to become more you know helpful and compassionate and so on and i've heard people argue the opposite and i've heard them say that there's no correlation between spiritual awakening and behavior and all that behavior could be very crude and cruel and rough and yet one could be awakened but i really just question whether that's fully true whether whether there might not be higher values to awakening that that are being missed there
1: it's a really good point I would say it's about connection I mean if I'm a jerk you're probably gonna tune me out I mean I don't know maybe I'm a jerk and you're but you're still listening I don't know but I mean self that's the nature of self it's like the fool in the tarot deck like just stepping off a cliff Ooh, you know it just it doesn't know anything yeah if I'm a jerk who cares if I'm awake or not? You're probably going to tune me out. So I try to, you know, and it's interesting. Like, would I just, would I be a good or moral person or a kind person, like, for a purpose? Yeah, because freedom. It is the foundation, for me anyway, it's the foundation of all of that. So, I mean, that's part of why the relative is called relative, because it relates. So, like, passing me the salt, that's a relationship, right? That is a certain, you know, object relations, whatever What's it for? Like, what is the world for? I tend to say it it doesn't have an absolute value. It has a relative value. But what's interesting is if you use it, say you use what you have in the world to wake up, it changes everything. Because, like, say you have a pencil. It's just this absurd object, right? If you don't, you can write with it. Well, you know, I journaled for a long time. I mentioned William Samuel. Um, He got me into that. I kept a journal for 12 years I mean, I had, that was really important work. And so I used pens back then. I didn't, you know, computers weren't as prevalent, so I used writing tools. So I'm using a, a kind of meaningless object. You would mentioned, I don't know if you're into Camus, but the absurd. He said, like, what do we do about the absurdity of life? We'll use it.
0: Speaking of for William Samuel...
1: I know Sandy I, Jones too, by the way. Yeah,
0: so. I was going to mention her name in case people want to find out more about William Samuel. I did a, an interview with Sandy Jones, uh, which you can look up on that. Yeah, she endorsed my book. By oh, the way. good.
1: Nice. Just, just a little tidbit there.
0: Okay, we may have covered the point, but I, I guess the point I wanted to make is, you say, you know, if I'm a jerk, you're going to tune me out. My question would be, if you're a jerk, if you're behaving like a jerk, <laughs> not that there's any absolute universal criteria of jerkiness.
1: We all kind of know what it is, don't we? (laughs) Yeah. And if you don't know, then you're the jerk, right?
0: Then is that really um, representative of the full value of awakening? Or would that indicate a sort of a half-baked or partial stage of development and that there's more potential there for development um, that's a good question and and you asked about what is the purpose of the world or what is the purpose of mm-hmm. existence or something like that yeah. I mean some people like to think of it in terms of evolution of consciousness development of awareness is the purpose and that the, the universe is one big giant evolution machine so to speak and if that is the case speaking just hypothetically we could discuss sure. it more but then it would seem to me that someone who is really awakened has has kind of Merged with or discovered their essential identity with that intelligence which is intrinsic to and is governing the the creation. And it it has really become a servant of that. And and many people have spoken that way, that they've become a servant of the divine. You know, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace, Mm -hmm. um, St. Francis. So, you know, if you're really serving the divine, of course the divine likes to blow up planets by crashing asteroids into them and stuff like that, too. But there's a kind of a, Stephen Colbert said that the truth has a liberal bias. I think that the universe has an evolutionary bias in terms of promoting and facilitating greater and greater expression of its essential nature, the divine nature, And, and that awakened person becomes a servant of that, ideally. And if they're not a servant of that, if they seem to be serving something in opposition to that, then maybe further awakening is desired
1: yeah I'd say that like the event that I'm calling awakening definitely is a thing and then self is seen as empty and um, at the same time like I'm constantly improving and growing but when I say I I'm talking about I'm talking about the person the dude like the one that would hand you the the one that hands you the salt whatever that is Uh like hey let's hang out like if I'm you know transparent being with no, you know, what am I going to do? It's like, you know, we do things. You know, I like to hike. I like to ski. I like to go and have a beer. I like to um, be with people. I like to do this work. And there is a sense of self that's there. It's just, it's empty, right? So every object in the universe is like that. It isn't ultimately real or true, but it has a relative truth. And again, it's about connecting. It's about relationship. It's about connecting. So the better that better I can be in that respect, I think the more I'm able to connect with others. And I mean, I think everyone, we're all jerks to some degree. We're all, it's, everything's awkward. I mean, the self just doesn't know what to do. Like I said, it's like the fool. It's in the tarot deck, just there's such a humility about it. And I'm constantly surrendering myself to not knowing, what I call not knowing, just I don't know. And yet there's a beingness that, it doesn't know conceptually, because that has nothing to do with it because thoughts aren't true. It's what Franklin Merrow Wolf called knowledge through identity. It's I am. You know, like does a river know how to flow or does it just flow? It doesn't think. It just is, and it's perfect. It's just you know, so Taoism just I think morality's part of that. I feel I feel, at least for me personally, which is probably the most honest thing to say, is that I really do try to be a decent human being. Do I always succeed? No. Just ask Ali. I mean, I'm kind of, I can be abrasive, I can be rude, I can interrupt, I mean, I've interrupted you a couple of times, I, but I try not to.
0: No, you're doing okay. Um, you know what you said about not really knowing, there's, I keep quoting the Gita a lot, but people, some, some people don't like that, but I happen to know at least the first six chapters, but there's a, there's a verse which says, unfathomable is the course of action, and mm-hmm. the implication there is that the the intricacies and the ramifications and the, uh, of any action are so complex that they're beyond the grasp of human intellect. But what is advised is to sort of get in tune with or merge with that intelligence which does permeate and orchestrate the whole thing. And then spontaneously action will be performed with the sort of skill which you might have if you did actually know all the ramifications even though you're incapable of it.
1: I agree. What comes to me is darkness is just as light as light, and light is just as dark as darkness. You know, yin and yang, as soon as you think you know what it is, it isn't. It's, it is its purely movement or stillness. What is it that Jesus says? So what's the sign of the kingdom of, of movement within stillness or something? I don't know. I read that, I think, Gospel of Thomas maybe. but It's... It's interesting. It's an absolute consciousness that includes, it's hard to say this, frankly, for me, but it includes genocide. How do you reconcile that? I don't know. We're working on it. Like, I, you know what? I'm not, I try not to be a genocidal maniac. That's my job. You know, and, and I, through doing Katie's work, it is radical if you really get into it. The turnaround that she has, like, for example, people shouldn't judge. That's your thought. Well, first of all, people do judge, so it's not true. I mean, it's all we do. It's just everywhere judgments. But then it turns around like I shouldn't judge. Oh, wait, I'm doing that. It's like it's like the problem is littering, and everyone's strewing garbage everywhere, and and you're like ah, that's terrible, and yet you're doing it too. <laughs> you gotta stop. You know, I mean, it just to clean up, you're part of it. I was just
0: going to say, you, you, you kind of choose what team you want to be on. Do you want to be on the genocide team, uh, do you want to be mm-hmm. the guy who drove the car into the crowd in Charlottesville, or do you want to serve a higher purpose? Um, Human. You know, yeah. every, All is well and wisely put, and it, ta- and it takes all types to make a universe, but where do you want to affiliate? You know? and What is the experience of your life going to be like, based upon with, you know, whom you associate, with whom you affiliate, with the kinds of actions you do? Mm-hmm. You choose.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's an ongoing process. Richard talks, you know, in your interview, I watched it, and I feel that he he's a wonderful teacher. I mean, again, I don't mean to flatter anyone, but, you know, he is. And I'm just glad that he taught me that stuff, you know? I don't know what I'd be like personally if I hadn't. I mean, I don't know if it, I'd even be here, like, talking to you. But I think he, he mirrors a certain social responsibility and, and sort of a grace and dignity that we can all understand, and that's part of it. And yet so is the jerkiness. There's a little, you got to have a little of that, right? I mean, it's just, it's part of the spice of, of what we're doing. If it's held consciously, it's not a problem. That's the thing. In my book, I notice to say a lot about like anger. In Buddhism, they're like, well, anger and certainly rage, fear. These are like um, afflictions, I think. You know, they're, they're problems and they are. But if they're held consciously, it doesn't matter. I mean, you can actually be passionate and it's not a problem.
0: Yeah, I think it depends on how much you indulge and also whether you use spirituality as an alibi for misbehavior, which I've seen people <laughs> that do. It doesn't
1: happen, does it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know. So I try to be a decent uh, person. That's what I try to do.
0: Somebody was telling me the other day about somebody in our town, uh, maybe there's more than one, who uh, have done all kinds of scurrilous business things. And, you know, when they're called on it, it's more like, Oh, uh, it's not. I'm not the doer. I'm not the actor. You know, um, mm. it's just all you know the gunas of nature carrying this out. And so tell they're that using, to the judge. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. They're using yeah. spirituality as an alibi for misbehavior.
1: Yeah, I don't. I hear that. I I don't know if I do that. I try not to.
0: Yeah, I
1: might have. It is convenient, you know, but I, it's just not. Talk about being a jerk. I mean. Mm. Yeah, I just, I try to take responsibility for all that and not, not yeah. do that.
0: Okay, now there's about five more points in your book, and we're, if we spend 10 or 15 minutes on each one, we're going to go way over time. So okay, lightning do round. That. Yeah, so it's like, you know, commitment, embodiment, meditation, community, life, devotion. All right, thank you. <laughs> so, commitment, and let's, let's just spend like a lightning round, like you said. Sure.
1: Uh Commitment, I talk about the Bodhisattva vow. Again, I'm not a Buddhist, but it's important and it's in the middle of the book cuz you're at the point at the, you know at that point in the process that's it's it's going from a level 2 to a 3 where you're committed and committed to
0: the practice to the path
1: we're talking about commitment rise chapter 5 yeah uh you're committed no you're committed to I call it the path of awakening which sounds it might sound kind of lame but it is what it is yeah so there's actually a vow that one takes franklin merrill Wolfe took it richard took it and richard Fortunately, allowed me to take it, and in Yosemite Valley, what right, is and the vow? Is? It is beautiful. I mean, I'm telling you, and there's a certain ripeness or maturity for that to occur, hmm. and it's really important. I talk about it in the book, but it, it's necessary to get past that point, so to speak.
0: And what was the vow? Uh,
1: I don't have it memorized. Um, it's in the book. Oh,
0: well, and it's, what was the gist of it? What, what were you committing to?
1: It's it's like uh, may may all beings. What is it? I, it's funny I can't remember it, but it's basically like, you know, like the
0: Bodhisattva vow. Yeah, kind of
1: thing. so yeah, I think Richard calls it the Kuan Yin vow because, okay, right. But it's he gave it to me, so yeah. It's um, yeah, it's in the book. It's like <laughs> may all beings be free. Like basically, I'm going to stay behind until all beings are free. And yeah. we could get into what that means, and it, you know, but I. Don't, but it's it's more of the spirit of it. It's more of the spirit. I mean, Jesus says he who is last shall be first, and first last, and all that. So. So, you know, there's some of that.
0: Someone told Ramana about the the Bodhisattva vow, and he, he laughed and he said, that's oh, like saying, I'm not going to wake up from this dream until everybody else wakes up from this dream. Um, yeah,
1: I I can see that perspective, and yet, you know, if Richard had said, we want you to stack this pile of rocks and then take it down and stack it over there and do that for 10 years, I would have done it. And And we could get into what that means, but it's like there's a certain degree of transmission that's going on chapter six embodiment we've already talked about that a little bit embodiment uh richard talks richard's um at the beginning of that chapter it's funny i have two quotes i contrast shankara with walt whitman like say which one of these is true shankara says the body is like a bag of bones and filth and it's worthy of our contempt whoa (laughs) and like and yes to that and then um uh well, Whitman says... I praise um,
0: the body electric. I, yeah,
1: I sing the body electric. Sing
0: the body electric, right?
1: You know, the armies of those I love engirth me and I engirth them. And, you know, I shall not go off until I discorrupt them and charge them full with the charge of the soul. That's a paraphrase. I may have botched it. But they basic... I mean, those are, they're both true. And if you read the book, it'll make sense.
0: Okay. Great. <laughs> um, um, meditation.
1: I will say that I do a lot of embodiment moving meditation in my retreats Uh, and it's wonderful and it's awesome and it works. We do sitting too, but if you, if if your body isn't awake, then you're not awake. That's just, I'm asserting that without defending it, you know, but that's how it is. Chapter seven meditation. Um, I just cover, I really cover the different forms of meditation. Um, mindfulness, inquiry, prayer, they're all different takes on the same process that I call uh, conscious relationship. And,
0: and you teach some yeah, forms of meditation on your retreats
1: and stuff. Totally. And um, it's pretty simple. I try to keep it simple because it's complex. You'll forget it. And you won't do it. One of the main points I make at the beginning of that chapter is that meditation practice and meditation itself are not the same thing. And again, I can't get into it. <laughs> I kind of want to, but Meditation is the relationship of the formless with the form. And it is already. So practice is just waking up to that.
0: Okay. Good. Community.
1: Uh basically so working with a group magnifies if you do it again, it, it's important to have a good teacher. Uh and to have <laughs> there's a section in there literally called avoiding cults, so check that out. I mean I have no interest in, in anything. You know, remotely related to what looks like an authoritarian—I can't even talk—an authoritarian deal. But I wrote about it there. That being said, um, getting a group together and invoking that presence through these practices—it ma- it greatly magnifies the, the, the presence. You were saying something about the sangha is the. What did you say?
0: Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the, the yeah. famous Buddhist Zen master, said that the next Buddha may be the sangha. In other there words, we're not, we're not going to be waiting for some great big superstar or savior type guy, but this, the, the Sangha, the collective, the groups that we form can mm-hmm. be our teacher.
1: Yeah, that's basically what that is. Chapter 9 uh, is called Life, and that is, um, really it's about just living this in the world. Living, you know, you're a student, you've, you've made all this progress, and you're getting closer maybe, and yes, it sounds linear, and that's how it is. So, it's living it. Part of you know. It i don't have to be how, apologetic
0: for linear. I don't think. You know. I, I, I mean. Yeah, I guess. Spiritual development is linear. I, I, I've yet to find anyone yeah. who hasn't progressed through various stages.
1: Okay. So remember. So I was saying. Um, so you have like your party self and your strict spiritual self, and you know, like, it, just live, live it. Just live it. Be be a decent human being and like deal with your parents. Do, you know home for the holidays kind of stuff? How do you do? You know, that's really what that's about. Uh, and then Chapter Ten, Devotion is. Uh, it, it's ri- I will say it's written. I really like that chapter, but it's written with a. It's as close as I could get to that sense of of formlessness, and and what that's like, and to put it into words. And frankly, it sounds a bit. I almost want to say apocalyptic, which, I mean, viewers may be like, "What?" You know. But basically, so you're talking about ego death. You're talking about. You know, if you read, it's in the literature. Like the world ends, you know, the universe ceases to exist. Self ego, you know. I think if you don't understand that, that's where it's going. At least conceptually, like, okay, that's what it's like. Then you're, you know, it's. It, to me, it felt dishonest not to put that in there. That being said, I don't know. Just read it and see what you think. But it, but it's, it's like part of it is like it, you're done. It's over. It's ended. Like you were saying. Um, if I were to write something now, it would probably include more about like, okay, what's it like after that? You know, it just kind of ends. It's like, you're, you know, formlessness. So I would say it was, that was honest when I wrote it. And it still is, as long as you understand, okay, that's what it's like. And then you wash the dishes, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, I, let me dwell on this for a bit, cause I don't yet understand why you would associate a word like apocalyptic with devotion, all the great non-dual teachers that we talk about like Shankara, Ramana, Mm -hmm. Nisargadatta, Papaji, many others, they're all extremely devotional characters. Um, You know, Shankara wrote all this beautiful devotional poetry and was Mm -hmm. devoted to Durga, I believe, and um, Ramakrishna to Kali, and you know, Ramana to Shiva in the form of Arunachala and Papaji to his teacher and, and Sagadata to his teacher and they were always doing pujas and singing bhajans and prostrating to the floor and all this stuff. So there's, there's no, at least in the examples of these people, there's no incompatibility between non dual realization and devotion, and in fact it, it would almost seem that non dual realization provides a context or a platform or in which devotion can really soar. How does that relate to what you're saying here
1: What did i say apocalyptic <laughs> you did say that i'm not I wasn't sure yeah. why good question um because it ends your nightmare it, good it, sense
0: it, then it's it's like the end
1: of the nightmare well, yeah we all okay you know. Isn't the last—I'm really not a Bible scholar, but isn't the last book in the Bible the—
0: Revelations, yeah, but that all apocalypse. sounds like fire and brimstone and, I know, you know, I know. But I like think all that, the
1: sinners being cast into yeah,
0: the fire and all that jazz.
1: How many cults have there been or continue to be where they're just, like, praying for the end of the world? It's like, it's wicked, it's sinful. It's like, um, I wouldn't say all those things, but I would say there is some kind of understanding that the spiritual path has to do with, like, ending that, you know, it just— And if you read, say, Shankara, I mean, he's really clear about it. He's like, it's done. You know, the world ends. And, of course, I've said that embracing the relative continues. So it's just empty. So uh, there's that. But um, that's why I said apocalyptic, because devotion to me is the purest. It's basically love of truth with a capital T. It's where you love. Remember when I said I was doing the work of Brian Katie? And I'm like, wow, I, I love this, like. I just felt good. I felt happy. like, But more than happy, like more freedom, more just, I don't know, like um, consciousness, you know. And if you, you know, to fall in love with that is, I would say that's the most potent, huh, the most potent weapon you have in the war against falsehood. No, it's funny because like, you know, these militaristic images. But I mean, Whitman says, you know, the armies of those I love and girth me and I girth them. The armies, you know, There's, a, there's something about there's a fierce, there's there's a determination. It's like devotion means giving everything. Give give it all you've got. And you know what? You're next. Like it feels like you're being undermined. It feels, but it's it's ego, but man, it feels like you. So not you, Rick, but just in general, it feels like so devotion to me. I felt that, and that's what helped me across that threshold I was talking about. So ego, death, like what do you let go into? I talk about faith. Faith isn't a belief. It's a relationship with the formless. It's just complete unknowing. But yet devotion draws you forward, and man, there's no control. It's love of that which is. That's it. And so it's at the end of the book because if you start out with that, yeah, the ego is probably going to co-opt it, and you'll end up, I don't know doing what, but watch out. You know what I mean? It could become an obsession with, you know, devotion. It's it's poorly understood, but in our culture anyway, maybe not in India, but um, it's important to develop a certain discernment, I think, before you get to that point, and that's why it's at the end. But, I mean, if you could skip to devotion, yeah, do that.
0: I think but, devotion needs to have a foundation in terms of self realization because if you don 't know who you are, then who is going to be devoted to what Margie used to say that a small pond can't rise up in big tidal waves without stirring up the mud at the bottom and, and by the same token, um, unless there's that foundation of of being, then the heart can 't rise in great waves of devotion because it just doesn't have the foundation or the depth or the capacity to do
1: so yeah so like uh, hearing you say that like it, it kind of bothers you when people say well I'm done it's over I do kind of say that it doesn't bother me that much it's just of, sort of like yeah eh,
0: really salt. man yeah.
1: right I mean we can yeah. still pass the salt and hang out and yeah. it's over so it's both and, and I want the I want people hearing this to hear that and the heart of it is really compassion I think I mean if, you know if you love people love beings and you want like yeah let's do this you know let's mm-hmm. do it Okay. Good.
0: Well, we've covered a lot. This has been a good conversation. Thank you. I knew it would be, just listening to your talks and, and whatnot, that you know, you're an articulate guy and you've, you've put a lot of thought into this stuff and taken it very seriously. And uh, I had a feeling we'd have an interesting conversation, which we have. Thank you. Good. Okay, so let me wrap it up. I've been speaking with James Wood. And uh, I'll be linking, as always, to James, to, well, I, I always create a page for each person and, you know, say a little bit about them, link to their website and stuff. So James's website is jameswoodteachings.com, and I'll be linking to that. And um, you can go there and find out what James has to offer and get in touch with him. As you know, probably, this is an ongoing series. And if you would like to, uh, you know, check out previous ones or be notified of future ones, or subscribe to the audio podcast or donate or you know see who is scheduled in the coming months or whatever, go to batgap.com and just check out the appropriate menus to do those things. So thanks for listening or watching. Next week, as I mentioned, will be uh, well, I didn't mention her name, it'll be Glory G, who is this woman who was who owned a biker bar and was a bartender and had some horrific experiences and ended up sort of Literally on her knees and and then the the, the light broke through, um, so I think she's going to be really interesting um, so so thanks james um,
1: and uh, i'll on. say I'll say one thing of a practical uh-huh. nature that we got a new website recently, and that you know we're really adding more content to it okay uh, if there's like if people are wondering like what can they do, one thing you can do is uh get on our mailing list and we won't spam you but we'll let you know about upcoming retreats and things like that. Yeah. Jameswoodteachings.com Yeah. And you get a free download of chapter one of uh, Ten Paths. Of the book. Okay, great. It's worth it.
0: And I don't spam you either. If you sign up to be notified of each new interview you get basically one email a week. Um, We don't use the list for anything else. So great. Thanks for listening or watching everybody and we'll see you next week. And thanks again, James. Have a good life. <laughs> we'll Thanks, you touch. too. <laughs> I
1: hope to see you again.
0: You too. You too.